the book of Revelation is uh, obviously very different from the other books of the New Testament. Um, really only two parts of the book of Revelation seem like they're sort of normal for those who are familiar with the whole Testament. And one of them is the part we're going to be reading this morning, the prologue, the first eight verses, and the other is the seven letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. So this is one of those islands where we feel like, yeah, I, I can understand this, I can get this, and then the rest of it is... Uh, is so it will seem strange to us, or does seem strange to us. So let's read this uh, portion, chapters, chapter 1, 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, whom God, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was, sorry, from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The o- okay, well, I'm going to divide these eight verses into five chunks. We're going to go through them and include the application as we go. So the rest of the sermon is in these five chunks. First one is one and two. Oop. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Here is the beginning of the prologue. Prologue, I believe, of the whole book. And it tells us four things in these two verses. It tells us what's in this book. Revelation. And revelation means revealing what has been hidden. And here it's revealing about future things, clearly. It also tells us what it's written, who it's written for. To show his servants the things which must soon take place. So it's written for God's servants. And then it tells us when these things are going to take place. It says the things that must soon take place. Now here we are in the first verse, and we're already at a point of controversy in the book of Revelation. And of course there are different interpretations about how Revelation should be interpreted. 
There are some who think the book of Revelation tells us about things which will happen right before the return of Christ. These have been called futurists because they think the book is about the future. Now, here we are 2,000 years or so after the book was written and these verses about it happening soon seem to fly in the face of the idea that this book was written about the distant future. In response, 2 Peter 3.8 is often cited. With the, day, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. Others use this happening soon language to argue that the book of Revelation was a prophecy of what was to take place in the very near future at the time, in the first century, and specifically in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and massacred the Jews. This view is called preterism, which means the past. Preterists claim that the book was written in the 60s AD and say these verses about it happening soon prove their point that the prophecies were fulfilled in 70 AD. The problem is that most of the evidence points to the book of Revelation having been written in the 90s AD, a whole generation after 70 AD. The classical view of Revelation, which takes the book as referring to the period of time from the last apostle to the second coming of Christ, leading up to and including his return, thinks the things in Revelation began to be fulfilled very soon, as John was very old and about to die. Now the second part of this prologue, and the last part, is in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads a lot. We'll go to verse 3. There we go, thank you. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This pronounces a blessing on those who read this book and explains why we're doing this series. And it helps us to set our expectations as we embark on our journey through this book. We should expect it to be a blessing. That's what God promises. There's actually a lot of cynicism among Christians about this book. Mostly I think it's because some have been so preoccupied with it and misguided in their interpretation of it for the last century or two. And the result is that many Christians have no patience with studying the book of Revelation. But this verse tells us that this book is important and that there's a blessing in it for us. As I was thinking about this and preparing the sermon, on my playlist was playing one of my favorite songs, Worn by 10th Avenue North. It goes like this, I'm tired, I'm worn, My heart is heavy from the work it takes to keep on breathing. I've made mistakes. I've let my hope fail. My soul feels crushed by the weight of this world. And I know that you can give me rest. So I cry out with all that I have left 
Let me see redemption win. Let me know the struggle ends. That you can mend a heart that's frail and torn. I want to know a song can rise from the ashes of a broken life. And all that's dead inside can be reborn. I've lost my will to fight. So heaven, come and flood my eyes. And I thought, that's exactly what the book of Revelation is. It is heaven flooding our eyes with visions of redemption winning, with the struggle ending, with the rebirth of a dead world and a dead humanity. And notice what verse 3 says, Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it. Revelation is not merely a puzzle to figure out. Ultimately, it's something that we're supposed to listen to and heed and keep and do and obey and live out. It says the same thing at the end of the book. In the very last chapter, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The prologue that we've just read, 1 through 3, also tells us the chain of transmission. It begins with the Father, and He gives it to to Christ, His Son, who gives it to the angel, who gives it to the Apostle John, who gives it to the reader. It is passed down like a game of telephone. Most of the time, of course, in the game of telephone, the message gets distorted by the end. But what about God's Word? There are many who presume that since faulty human beings are involved in the transmission of God's Word, that the result is necessarily tainted. The thinking goes like this, people are flawed, and therefore everything people do is flawed. Well that line of thinking is flawed. Does the fact that human sinners are included in the line of passage really imply that God's word is inevitably distorted and can't be trusted? Is God's power not strong enough to compensate for human weakness if he so wills? The all-powerful and infallible God is perfectly able to guarantee faithful transmission even when he's dealing with very imperfect human beings. That's what the Bible says here and elsewhere. Now in verses 4 to 6, it seems like we have another prologue. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before the throne, his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of, from the, of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now this seems to me to not be a 
a second prologue to the whole book, but rather to be a prologue to the first section of the book, namely the letters to the seven churches. And that's because we see the seven churches introduced here, and that continues in the vision that finishes this chapter and into the uh, letters themselves. The mention of the seven churches and the seven spirits is the first use of this book's favorite number, the number seven. Numbers in Revelation, of course, bear very important symbolic meaning, as we will see as we go along. Now, there were more than seven churches in Asia, but there's a reason why it says seven churches. From the first chapter of the Bible on, the number seven represents fullness and completeness. So I think we are wise to take the seven churches here as representative of all the churches and of the church as a whole. The number three is actually also a significant number in the book of Revelation, representing the triune God. And we see that here in verse 4 and 5. From him who is and who was and who is to come, that's God, the Father. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, which I believe refers to the Holy Spirit. We'll get to that next week. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the rulers of kings on earth. So we have the three, even though the number isn't mentioned, we have the three here used. Now verse 4 to 6, this second prologue, contain two things which together form a beautiful summary of the gospel. First there's a benediction, and then there's a doxology. The benediction is grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits were before his throne and from Jesus Christ the faithful witness the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. So Jesus Christ here is referred to as the faithful witness. You know God sent Jesus to be his spokesman. You could even say that Not just that God sent Jesus, but that he spoke Jesus. Jesus is called the Word of God in John 1. And he is the firstborn from the dead. You know, mankind died in Adam's sin. But mankind will be reborn from the dead when Christ returns. But Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, he became the firstborn of the dead. He's also the ruler of kings on earth. And you know, if you've paid attention to many of my sermons on during Advent on prophecies pointing ahead to Christ, that one of the great prophetic themes in the Old Testament was that the coming Messiah would rule over the kings and the nations of earth. Remember Psalm 2. I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Following the benediction, there is a doxology. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, 
To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And sometimes I just need to hear that Jesus loves me. And here it is. To Him who loves us. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And He has freed us from our sins by His blood. Ever since the earliest days of man, people have offered sacrifices in an attempt to escape from the guilt of their sin. The idea was that the animal was killed in the place of the sinner. So the animal's blood was a symbol of the forgiveness. And on the cross, Jesus fulfilled this practice of sacrifice. He is the Lamb whose blood frees us from our sins. And finally, it says He made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. When we were nothing, when we were useless and powerless and purposeless, Jesus made us kings and priests like he is now I know that usually when you hear that he's made us a kingdom you don't think about the fact that the idea that he made us kings but there's very good reason to think that that's what John is, uh, has in mind here that he has made us kings and priests but don't have time to get into the why of that to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever amen Here the good news that he has reflected on sparks worship in his heart. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever. And then in verse 7, there's a shift from what Jesus has done to what Jesus will do. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Jesus is coming back. It will be a cosmic event. Every eye will see him. Every person on earth will be shaken by his appearing. But then there's this strange part of this as well. Even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. The pierced one is clearly Christ. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. So what is this wailing at Christ's coming, which emanates from all the tribes of the earth and from those who pierced him? Is it... You know what we might expect? The wailing of terror as we, we find in, uh, in Revelation chapter 6 where they're, uh, they're horrified by the coming of the Lamb and they're looking for the rocks to fall on them to hide them. Or perhaps in Isaiah 13 which says, Wail for the day of the Lord is near. Destruction from the Almighty will come. All hands will be feeble. Every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Is that the... uh, 
the wailing that we read about here it doesn't seem that that's what's going on in verse 7 the wailing here seems not to be a cry of terror but a cry of loving grief over the suffering that has been brought upon the one that they have pierced the grieving in other words seems to be not over what's going to happen to me but over what I've done to him now why do we think this well it's because the language here seems to be taken from two different passages it's mainly taken from what Jesus said in Matthew 24 in verses 29 to 30 he says the sun will be darkened the moon will not give its light Um, this should be up Matthew 24 thank you the sun will be darkened the moon will not give its light the stars will fall from heaven then will appear in heaven the sign of the son of man and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory now in that saying of Jesus we find the language of the Lord coming in the clouds of heaven as well as the tribes of the earth mourning over his appearing both of which are picked up here in Revelation 1-7 that's everything in 1-7 except the reference to the mourning over the one they have pierced it says that they mourn but it doesn't say they mourn over the one that's pierced and that part seems to come from Zechariah 12-10 where God says they will look on me the one they have pierced and will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son so here we have the language of the Lord whom they have pierced being mourned over but it's not mourning of terror it's mourning of grieving love as one mourns for an only child as one grieves for a firstborn son so what are we to make of this wailing over Jesus when he appears well the fact is our sins were the reason for his death our sins are the reason he was nailed to a cross every wound every tearing of his flesh every mocking every spitting into his face every sneer every blow was payment and punishment for our sins those who actually killed Jesus were not just acting on their own behalf they were acting on our behalf if we had been in their place we would have killed him too our lies our lusts our complaints our ingratitude our anger our self-righteousness our unbelief our self-sufficiency for these things Jesus suffered unspeakable agony upon the cross even now we grieve over this we sing behold the man upon the cross my guilt upon his shoulders ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished his dying breath has brought me life I know that it is finished how can we not grieve over what we have done to him 
Our grieving over Him is the same thing, really, as our grieving over our sin. John 4.9 tells us to grieve and mourn and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. If our sins, sending Jesus to the cross, isn't an occasion for mourning, whatever else could be. It's actually a beautiful thing, isn't it? When we see someone come to the point of recognizing what his sin did to Christ. That point when we say, what have I done? It's very easy for us not to be very impressed by our sins. Oh sure, I blow it every once in a while, but you know, compared to everybody else, I'm not so bad. What happened to him shows us what each of our sins deserves. And on the last day, when for the first time in our lives, we are given complete knowledge and remembrance of all of our sins, when even what has been whispered in secret is proclaimed from the housetops, as Jesus said in Luke 12.3, only then will we grasp the depths of what Jesus paid for on the cross. And it is... And is it surprising that when we finally are given the ability to grasp what really happens on the cross, that there will be some sense in which we shriek in terror, in horror? This is what the old spiritual is about. My Lord, what a morning. My Lord, what a morning. Oh, my Lord, what a morning. When the stars begin to fall. Even though most versions of that get it wrong and spell it M-O-R-N instead of M-O-U-R-N, it's clearly from Matthew 24 and refers to the coming of the Lord and what a morning there will be on that day. Now this, you know, this is troubling. People say, I thought that the return of Christ was going to be a happy day. Why does God expose the ugly depths of our sin? Doesn't that ruin the party? Well, remember, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Forgiveness comes to the one who grieves. Mercy comes to the one who cries out, what a a wretched person I am. The reason that God exposes all of our sin on the last day is to glorify the cross and the one who died there. The bigger the cross looks, I'm sorry, the bigger our sin looks, the bigger the cross looks. And in response to our grief will come a declaration of the forgiving grace of Christ accomplished on the cross. And it will more than calm our grief. Now, there are churches who try to make their services happy by avoiding any talk of sin and the cross. But real joy comes from recognizing our sin and recognizing the amazing grace by which he covers our sin. Even now, in our mourning and our weeping, there is also rejoicing. For though we grieve that he had to die, we rejoice that his love was so great that he was willing to die and that in dying he's removed our sin as far as the east is from the west there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins 
And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And then our section ends with verse 8. Where it's like God inserts himself. Everything up to this point has been, you know, just John getting it passed down. But like God steps in and he wants to say something. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And that concludes our passage. This personal pronouncement of himself. I am the Alpha and Omega, referring to the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. In other words, I am the beginning, and I'm also the end. Now this is fitting in the last book of the Bible. In the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, God says that he's the Alpha. The beginning of all things. And now in the last book, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. And then he goes on to add to that, who is and who was and who is to come. Reaffirming, reaffirming what John already said about him in verse 4. Asserting that he is the one who always is. Present, past, and future. Because ultimately this book is not about the future. It's not about the evil world. It's not about the past. This book is about God. There's many disturbing and horrific things talked about in this dramatic book. We're introduced to many monsters who perpetuate ghastly calamities on the earth and upon its people and upon God's people. But over it all stands the sovereign God with all power in his hands who knows the end from the beginning, who not only overcomes the powers of darkness, but even uses them as his tools to bring all things to a glorious conclusion where he is worshipped and honored and adored. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of embarking on our journey through this book, this amazing powerful book. Be with us, we pray. Use it to stir us, to open our eyes, to convict us. But mostly, Lord, use it to show us who you are. Lord, at the end of this year, we want to be people who have a greater grasp of you and of your Son, and of the Spirit, and of your work in this world. Help us. And now, Lord, we thank you for the privilege to come before the table that Jesus set for us, where he offers himself to his people as they trudge through this difficult life where he feeds them and assures them and reminds them of what he's done for them and how much he loves them. Please be with us as we come to this table. And Lord, may we be filled and may our hearts be warmed toward the one who loves us even when we forget. 
we pray in Jesus' name.